0: Cracked fans to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Buckle your seatbelts, folks, as we have a phenomenal show for all of you listeners today as we are joined by the legend, Pam Shriver, to discuss oh so many different things. Of course, a shout out as always to our dear friends at Swing Vision for their support of this show. If you want access to the best in artificial intelligence technology in the tennis world, just download the Swing Vision app today you can learn more by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. But with that said, I am excited, folks. So let's get to it. My conversation with the one and only Pam Shriver. The man that The amazing Mr. Joining us on the show for the first time today is a Hall of Famer who won 133 pro titles during the course of her career. Of course, this year she was named Tennis Abstract 76th best player in tennis history, but perhaps more importantly, she is now one of the dons of tennis media. If you're going to try and do what I do, you better be ready to kiss this person's ring. Of course, I am referring to the great Pam Shriver, who joins us on the show today. Pam, how are you doing?
1: Good. I've never even had my name, like in the same sentence, as kiss my ring. I mean, maybe (laughs) kiss my something else, but not that one. Anyway... (laughs) Thank
0: you. No, it is a pleasure to have you. You are certainly one of the dons of tennis media. As I was writing, I was like, that's the most apt description I can think of. And we had the chance to chat a little bit while I was at Tennis Channel uh, doing second serve, but we didn't get to explain. Uh, Or at least I felt I didn't get to experience the full Pam Shriver experience. So very grateful to have you on the show today. And, you know, obviously off-season time for you. I'm sure listeners are wondering, what do you do during the month of December to, dare I say, reset things heading into the new year?
1: Um. Well, let's see, what do I, this time of year is really busy with three kids, even though they're older, you know, we celebrate Christmas. So that's coming up. We're in December. I can't believe it. (laughs) So a lot of it is kind of getting ready for winter break. And, you know, I'm actually looking ahead to January and uh, I've already started, I'm going down to Melbourne for the first time in three years, unless something significant changes. And so I'm kind of got one eye on the holidays, one eye on you know, my next bit of work and then keep myself as fit as possible.
0: That's what we like to hear. I'm curious, how difficult was it for you to transition from obviously throughout the majority of your career? You've had that opportunity to be on site for so many of these events when calling matches to be in person, gather whatever information you are able to just by being there. How difficult was that to cover especially events of this magnitude remotely?
1: It certainly has its challenges. I mean, the last two years, uh, ESPN, we've covered it from Bristol, Connecticut. We're actually covering it again from Bristol, Connecticut. But there are two or three of us that are going down to Melbourne. Um, And I told my boss last week that you know I had a lot of reasons I wanted to go down. My kids are dual citizens. Their dad's Australian. My oldest boy is not in school at the moment. He's finished with his high school and he's taken some time he wants to go back down. He hasn't been since he was in third grade. And, you know, he hasn't seen the whole Lazenby side of the family in years and years. So there's that. I'm dipping my toe uh, in the coaching waters. Uh, at just as a part-time help with uh, Donna Beckett, we kind of had a accidental run in San Diego. I drove down just to talk to her about you know, about uh, player council matters and safeguarding and things like that. And next thing you know, she was open to my input about her game and the way she played her last qualifying match to get in the main draw. Next thing you know, (laughs) I kept helping her during the week. She kept winning. And so we kind of want to see, you know, if we have the right chemistry to um, make a difference. And certainly she's a player. I mean, there's so many opportunities in women's tennis right now. That if you can um, help somebody understand their strengths and just get them to believe that they also deserve a spot in the top 10, um, I think she has the, the tools and the competitive spirit to, to head that way. It may take time, but anyway, so there's that and then there's some on-site work for ESPN and I just love Australia and I haven't been back in too long.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I don't know if it's quite breaking news. As you mentioned, you did work with Donna in San Diego, but we're going to throw a breaking news sound effect on that information anyways. Why not? And I am curious, this, you know, again, I offered you no preparation in preparation for today's podcast in typical fashion, but was getting into coaching, you mentioned the fact that you did not go to San Diego with the intention of this arrangement becoming a thing. Is getting into coaching something that has always appealed to you? And, you know, what about this arrangement intrigued you to get involved?
1: You know, I've thought about it a little bit through the years. I coached my um, kids' middle school team, um, and it was really – I really enjoyed it. So up till now, that's been my only real official coaching hat um, but my backyard, I have a tennis court and another former pro, Alexandra Stevenson, has been coaching on my court since the first summer of COVID. Mm-hmm. And she's got a, some talent that she coaches. And every once in a while, I'll wander out on the court and give my two cents worth. And I do enjoy it. I, and um, But this was a really unexpected thing. It did occur to me through the years that I thought there were a lot of women coaches that were potentially good if they were just asked or if they just found you know a player willing to listen and i and it was funny because um since donna and i had our week in san diego you know i know the wta tour is trying to promote you know the ability for there to be more women's women coaches and i i think women tennis players who played the tour we have a lot to offer and when you think about all the coaching consultants you know, most all of them have been on the men's side and, you know, there's no reason why there can't be more, um, you know, coaching consultants on the women's side. And again, I'm not looking because same reason other people don't look for it to be a full time thing. And you know, I got kids at home and it's it's not the time for full time, but uh, I'm excited for the opportunity. So I guess, yes, I didn't realize the poll was there as much as it was. And when San Diego was over, I mean, why wouldn't you enjoy it?
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. And for the record, just a story you may not care to hear. But when I was in middle school tennis, our coach was the French teacher. And I remember definitively in seventh grade beating him and being like, all right, like, what do we do now? And I can only imagine like a 12, 13-year-old kid walking on court and your coach is Pam freaking Shriver. You're like, this is the best. And so as a tennis community, let me just say thank you for participating in that. And I think anyone who has listened to your commentary, been fortunate enough to experience it as all of us have over the course of this past decade, you know, your passion, enthusiasm for the competition in tennis just shines through every piece of commentary that you do. And I'm always curious because I didn't have it at the scale nearly that you did. I mentioned it. Hall of Famer, 133 pro titles. Someone named you the 76th best all time at something. I wish someone would do that for me. Um, How difficult is it to turn off that competitive part of the brain, the part that is just so attracted to the competition of it all? Because I imagine getting into coaching, it must be nice to get to turn that part back on.
1: Well, it's interesting because in San Diego it was the first time I had experienced it at the at the pro level and it actually was really exciting. Um, obviously the week couldn't have turned out any better unless she had won the third set against Fiontech in the finals. Um, but up until a set of in the finals it was like it was just a dream run. Um, so you, you know, I've only I haven't experienced the tough weeks yet. Yeah. You know, even one Um, so I kind of know from my playing career that it's not one straight line anywhere, right? There's just a lot of ups and downs and you, you know, you got to look at kind of the big picture and the big goal in mind and there's no, you can't get there quickly, right? It just is a lot of hard work and a lot of, um, looking at new ideas just to get another half a percent better in, in one or two areas. Right. And then maybe you can get five percent better in a couple of areas just because you know maybe I'm the voice that says things like your serve could be one of the best serves in women's tennis if you have the right mindset and you have the right belief and why not let's go after it because and that's part of bringing my mentality from being a player and I don't expect you know no one's going to turn into the way I played nobody because it's like an original it was I can't see it ever happening again the way I played but there are certain parts to the way I played, like using my serve as a female as a weapon, mm-hmm. that I think is, you know, an important thing that I can help encourage um, people that I help belong.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, talking about your own game, and it's tough to say this because you're still 26 years old, but you were able to play well into your 30s and continue to sustain a high level. And obviously, at the time, that was not as prevalent as it is now, where you see Serena Williams was still very much in the conversation, if not the unequivocal best player in the world late into her 30s. And, you know, obviously, During the course of this week, there was a conversation after Fernando Verdasco tested positive for uh, taking, I believe it was Adderall, uh, was what he flunked out for. You know, there was a conversation about just in general what sort of substances are players taking and what does that conversation look like? And I'm curious going back, you know, to the 70s, 80s, 90s era of tennis, how much less prevalent the entire medical side of the operation now. And if you think that does factor into how these players are able to play so much later.
1: Yeah. I mean, shoot, our drug of choice was Advil, right? It was <laughs> just like, you know, get the inflammation down and Tylenol you know, drug, drug, post. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, um, you know, drug testing. I actually was, uh, I can remember the exact tournament. I, when it, I was had my first drug test, it was 10 years into my career. It was a month prior to the Olympic games in Seoul, Korea in 88. It wasn't a very sophisticated program, but it was the start of drug testing in tennis. 1988. Now, obviously, you know the rules and you know what you have to administer, and we we saw it a few years ago with Sharapova, how easy it is to, to ad, not administer things correctly, and that's obviously what happened to Verdasco. Now, my question that I tweeted out wasn't necessarily pointing any wrong fing- fingers at Verdasco for taking a medication that, from all um, You know, everything I read, he has been diagnosed for quite some time with ADHD, but it's my understanding, and I called it the grapevine of pro tennis, came from a very good source, that there's a lot of players um, on the men's side, more than the women's side, that are taking this kind of medication to help with their concentration and focus. And I just think, you know, the sport of tennis uh, needs to continue to do everything it can to make sure that you know, athletes and their teams aren't artificially gaining uh, advantages um, through a drug like Adderall. Um, Obviously, if you have ADHD, absolutely. But if you've never taken it as a kid, you've never been diagnosed as a kid through your school years, and then suddenly as an adult, um, you recognize, well, shoot, uh, uh, you know, and and anyone can probably get (laughs) a doctor certificate that they have it so it's a slippery slope but I just felt like I could do my I'm a bit I've become a little bit of a I want to say I'm a whistleblower but like my whole (laughs) safeguarding thing like obviously like I want that to change and I I had great personal reasons to tell my story Um, I want to see the workplace be safer I want to see drugs like Adderall not be uh, abused um, by people who really shouldn't be taking it and absolutely it can help if um, if your brain can focus better than somebody else who's not on it. So, I don't know. I just no. stir the pot, I guess.
0: No, first of all, this is why you are one of the Dons. Because you, again, this is, it, it all gets back to that. And, you know and I don't mean this in a political sense, but I mean this more generically, I like to view you as one of the progressive thinkers in tennis in that you are always trying to figure out what are the adjustments we can make to not only grow the sport on the court, but to grow it off the court as well. And so with that framework in mind, the question I would ask you as it relates, and I believe the technical term is the TUE, right? The therapeutic use exemption that players can get Uh, in certain cases, if they have been diagnosed with ADHD, to use things like Adderall. I guess my question to you would be, in this era, when drugs like that are so readily available, wouldn't it behoove of tennis in a forward-thinking manner to say, okay, we're going to allow it, but we're going to ensure you have doctors monitoring the dosage, ensure it's being administered properly so that, you know, the term abuse isn't thrown around so that these players aren't abusing it or using, you know, counterfeit or whatever sketchier drug equivalents there are out there that might be able to sketch by the drug test. I I suppose that would be – Dare I say, the progressive thought on this topic would be, well, if everyone's going to do it anyways, why not try to legalize it and then regulate it better?
1: Well, I haven't gone that far as to think about that whole side of things. But, um, you know, I think in general what I'm why I kind of step into some of the to the phrase sometimes is I just want the workplace for players to be fair and safe. And even, even if you're taking a drug that you think during your career is going to help you, you don't know, you know, maybe it's hurting something else. I mean, think about the days in football, uh, American football, when, you know, steroids were not banned. And think about all the players who took steroids over years and years and had some serious consequences because of it. So I don't know. I just think. You know, it's easy to say, well, I'll do whatever I can to be as good a tennis player as I can be, but it just has to be with guardrails on and with rules in place. And we all know, unfortunately, we all know that if people can gain an advantage that they can slide by and, you know, pass drug tests and have the TUE, uh, is that what it's It's TUE, right? Not T-E-U. Okay. T-U-E. Um, you know, you're going to try and do whatever you can. So um, trying to, as an as a sport, the governing body's trying to keep a step ahead. It's not that easy, but I hope now behind the scenes, they'll take a look at how many TUEs have they given for ADHD. And let's get some data behind closed doors. Doesn't need to be public, but that's one thing that where the sport should start. And I know that rests with... Um, you know, the, 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 the independent body that has four initials that I always also – I have a bit of <laughs> dyslexia, so I always get the initials all screwed up. Sure. Um, but they, they need to do some data collecting and, and see if the trend lines aren't so high that it would cause them to do further studies and research.
0: Yeah. Uh, Very well said. And you mentioned the term governing body. And by the way, this is far more serious of a conversation than I intended to have today. So I appreciate your candidness with this. But some of it comes back to there is no formal representative body for players, right? Like as cute as the player councils are. And while they do have some say, there's not a formal union for either of these players. They are all to some extent individual contractors. And that's where you know again i i just feel like the administration of any sort of you know uh trying to keep fair play with administering these drug tests i just feel like it's going to be difficult to do uh it's going to be difficult to administer and there really is no voice to fight on behalf of every player with that that's what it always comes back to me is that there's this lack of union
1: well i'm a little tired of that being an excuse i'm going to go back to the sure. safeguarding um Cause I've heard that for years quietly before I told my story, it was like, well, it's independent contractors and you know, they, we basically don't have the right to, but come on workplace safety. I mean, are you really just because tennis players don't work for like a company, like, you know, Walt Disney or Google or, uh, GE or whatever that they can't have safe workplaces i don't buy that i don't buy that i think it's a total excuse and i want all entities all seven main entities in tennis to just do better for players and i'm not just saying underage players that's the other thing that really gets me is like okay it's not just about checking room lists and making sure if you're under 18 you're not rooming with your coach no tennis player should be rooming with their coach ever I mean, obviously you have some situations, like I look up Kvitova is now engaged to her coach and she's known him forever, right? Mm -hmm. So there's certain things you kind of go, okay, well, you can sort of grandfather in certain situations, but basically I think it's a non-starter if uh, a coach or any member of the team gets hired to help the player become a better tennis player and then they end up having um, sexual relations. That's just sexual abuse it's a balance imbalance of power it's it's having a position of trust creep into you know your personal space and life and that's not okay as far as i'm concerned and so i don't know maybe being a coach and being part-time out there a little bit in 2023 i might just unintendedly stir the pot a little bit more no, we'll we will
0: see we need an enforcer, and no one would be better at that, obviously, than you, Pam, and everything you say, I think, will resonate with all of our listeners, and again, its I guess what I really should say is you talk about the guardrails. I agree. The problem I always see is who's going to, who's going to enforce those guardrails, and there are just so many different entities, right, because... Yes, there's an ITF, but like the ITF is really subservient in American tournaments to whatever the USTA wants, in tournaments in the UK to whatever the LTA wants, in Tennis Australia and all these different moving pieces. And I guess, you know, again, you obviously shared your story of what you went through as a player and your relationship with your coach, Why you know, well, I know you've talked about this before, but if you don't mind uh, telling our listeners, you know why was it so important for you to share that story?
1: Well, in my now great experience of several decades, many decades post ending that relationship, I realized how it adversely affected my life. Mm-hmm. It was one aspect. Um, the other aspect was seeing and hearing with my own eyes and ears how much it still goes on today. Um, And I believe an overwhelming majority of the time, it's a negative impact, I would say on both, but I'm primarily concerned about the player. Mm -hmm. So I kind of felt like telling my story and how, you know, my first relationship that I had, you know, now in today's world, it would be considered sexual abuse. Um, You know, it was the first relationship I had lasted five and a half years, and it set a pattern in place that I'm just now in my fi- late 50s and early 60s have been able to shake. Um, and I just think, more I don't know, more people need to tell their story who've had situations that wasn't correct, where you know the lines were blurred, but that, that's such a personal thing. I mean, I waited 42 years before I was able to tell it. And I also had to wait till certain things or people couldn't get hurt. My coach had died, his wife had died My mom died. So those are three main people for me that helped sort of unlock me. I didn't realize at the time, but it kind of unlocked like, okay, now I can tell my story. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to have to wait for everybody involved to to die. But I do think when you say who's going to police it, we all need to help police it. You know, they have that phrase when you see abuse of any kind, if you see something, say something, you need to report it. And we can all be reporters on this. This is not something where you shy away from and say, oh, I don't want to get involved. No, if 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 I see any kind of in, um, abuse going on at any point in any of my roles in tennis, I'm going to report it. And so I've already done some of that since coming out with my story, and I will continue to do it.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, case in point, and this might be one of the only benefits of social media when the video was going around of the coach abusing his player after the match and immediately the coach is sanctioned and authorities get involved. Absolutely. Like this is not an instant where you anyone can afford to be quiet. I'm also curious, you know, again, how do you think your era would have been different? had social media existed, had there been the heightened attention to every potential turn and screw up? How would that have changed your era in the Pro Tour?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I was going to say I don't think we would have had as much fun. You'd be a little more (laughs) careful. Sure. Uh, You'd have a lot more consequences for your actions on the court. I mean, I think about some stuff when I had my bad – emotional temper tantrum days on the court and then all it takes is one camera who's you know filming you and then and then it can get out there and you know your behavior isn't just contained to the arena it like it's out there and i had plenty of moments that if it had been on social media i would have been you know it would have been really upsetting that more and more people knew about it but it may have also helped me stop it because i didn't like the consequences of you know, embarrassing myself or my family. Um, but anyway, social media, I also think though, um, there has, there. I, I try to look at the good parts to it. I think it's really how quickly information, you know, if you know the trusted source on social media and they're posting something like a member of the media that you just know, they check all their sources and you just, so, so it really helps gather information. So there's a there's a lot of positives, but overall, and I have three teenagers, and I think I feel like teenagers are just really struggling under the burden of social media, and I feel terrible that my kids have to live through this era, and and I'm grateful that I did not.
0: Yeah, I'm. I was just thinking. I I suppose in a it would be both a positive and a negative to that uh, theme. What would the Chrissy Martina Rivalry have looked like in a social media era because there was plenty of gravitas to that rivalry given how frequently they played given how prominent both of them were as athletes and just superstars more broadly. But, like, would they have had the firmly ensconced camps on social media? I don't know. You know how the Djokovic fans have the alligator? What would have been the Chrissy alligator equivalent at the time? Who knows? Whatever the sponsor was, right? And you just see the Everett, I don't know what we call them, the Everett mob, I guess. Just would they have been out? That would have been the fascinating thing to me because especially I feel as though then – the superstars, you know, now I think there's a lot more parity. I, you know, I, I think players one through five of any era are going to stand out always. For me, the difference I see is like, you know, players 40 through 199 are probably a little bit better now than they were in the Much earlier better. decades. That's what, do you agree?
1: Oh, okay. So in women's tennis, I'm going to talk women's tennis right now because I feel like on the men's side, it's pretty, it's pretty different it has, you know, it's, the two era, the, the the era that we've been through the last fifteen years couldn't be more different. Actually, in many ways, in the men's and the women's side. So, in the women's side, to me, with Sviantek at number one, she is behaving and playing like a great number one player. Mm-hmm. I find two through ten actually pretty soft, mm-hmm. and, and I I say soft because I don't I don't know what other word to call it. Yeah. I just feel like it's inconsistent. Nobody is really you know we'll see what Pagula does in year two of this great run, um, securing a spot at number three. We'll we'll see about everybody that that, that sort of booted out old members of the top 10 that finished, you know, 20, uh, 21 in the top 10. Obviously you had the Ash Barty retirement, but I just feel there's so much opportunity right now because nobody is stepping up two through 10 in the kind of consistent way year after year. I'm not talking like Pagula couldn't have been more consistent this year. I mean, she was unbelievable but I'm talking about like years, of, several years of it. And we, I can, I'm, it, it baffles me a little bit like why women's tennis finds it in this situation where like, if you win a major, you get to the finals of a major, you automatically seems like you back up <laughs> except for Svantec. Right. Yeah. I mean, Barty didn't back up obviously, but I mean, now that Serena's retired it's, or evolving, then it, like, who's going to step up and be as consistent as Svantec with their results. And as you say, the depth say from I'm going to say from eleven to uh, to one hundred and ninety nine is never been better. So that's hence you know you look at someone like Donna Vekic who's around seventy in the world, and I'm like wow, there is very little difference between seventy and four in the world right now.
0: No, there are times when you watch Anastasia Potapova, let's say, who's like 46, former world junior number one, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see it. I see why you were the best of your generation. And if X and Y break right, boy, I, I the way we say it here on this show is there are currently 40 top 20 players on the WTA tour right now. And I do think it applies to the ATP as well in that, you know, another way we delineate it, Iga's tier one, right? Like, you know, every every event iga's competing for the title she's probably the only tier 1 right now on the wt tour and it's like andrescu i think is still a huge wild card obviously naomi a huge wild card as well they have flashed tier 1 upside but that would be my thing and honestly if between us pam no one else is listening i think jung chin wen the young chinese woman might get to that group pretty pretty quickly as well um but other than that, that that's how I see it. I'm curious if you feel similarly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I say I, there is only, there's one in, yeah. the, in the women's tour that stands out at the moment. And there's a lot of great players. There's a lot yeah. of, you know, I love the way like soccer competes. And mm-hmm. Sabalenka's story in 2022 is outrageously good. Um, what she was able to accomplish. So. You know, from the start of her year, couldn't get a serve in. So, I mean, there's just a lot of great stories, but I want to see results. I want to see people embrace the way Serena embraced being at the top and not kind of like being scared of it. There's nothing to be scared of to be a top player. It's something to celebrate and to strive for and to not at the end of your playing days, say, oh, darn it, if only I had done the following, maybe I could have gotten there too. So that's kind of like my approach in this coaching consultant thing, is like you don't want any regrets at the end of your time as a as a player because the, once you're done, there's no turn. There's for the most part, there's no turning back unless you retire early and decide to come back.
0: Yeah, we call it Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club here on this show, and it's the group of players who have that transcendent power that just on the right day. It's on their terms regardless what happens. So, like, Serena's there. Obviously, Kvitova's got a nice house in the country club. Ostapenko's, like, the end of the neighborhood house. that some Halloween's goes insane, but then the other Halloween's lights stay off. Candy's on the porch. Like, take what you can, but I'm not coming out. Um, I do think Sabalenka is in that Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. I think a Samsonova may belong in there even as well. And so to your point, right now it's just EGA, but I do think things are very intriguing. With that said, last question before I let you go. It's the end of the year. It's award season. I love awards. Like, I, Who doesn't like getting an award? Even if it's the paper plates in your office or whatever it may be, it's fun to hand out awards. I also think awards are the best mechanism we have to tell the story of a 2022 season. So for instance, my case for why I think Iga should not only be player of the year, which she's obviously going to win, but most improved player as well, is that when we look back on 2022, if we see, oh, Iga won both of those awards, we'll be like, yeah, because that was the year she killed everyone. And so I think awards have the capability to do that. That said, I was reading your number 74 case for best player of all time. And, you know, they didn't mention, well, Pam Shriver was also the 1978 newcomer of the year, right? Like that's not brought up in the conversation. And so I'm curious to you, do you think awards matter right now and should they matter?
1: not sure they do matter a whole heck of a lot um i mean i think the one that matters is player of the year to be honest um yeah i mean look of course most improved uh rookie i mean i i got actually comeback player twice rookie of the year once uh, doubles team of the year i don't know eight times with martina yeah. so they, they, i guess when i was playing when i look back i think back yeah it was it was fun but i you know to me if i was uh out there they would Honestly, there'd be only one award that would matter. Yeah. I, I don't want to make a comeback because I don't want the injury. <laughs> uh, I, I want to do everything I can, you know, to to like the way Novak has really been able to avoid injuries and just train smarter and better. Um So I don't know. I think, again, it's an award season of one for me.
0: Fair, but shout out to the Black Eyed Peas. You would have loved to win the Cracked Rackets No-No Drama, No-No-No Drama Award. And sadly, we're not that creative yet, I suppose, at the professional level. So maybe if they start to matter more, uh, we can get creative with them. But with all that said... Pam Shriver, obviously immensely grateful to have you on the show today. Is there anything we as tennis fans should be looking for from you over the course of the next few months? Anything we can do to support whatever it is you're up to?
1: Um, You know, I guess in my role, I, I serve on some tennis boards. I, I'll always care about WTA charities. Um, you know, I think following the WTA tour and seeing all that the women tennis players do to help charities off the court is really impressive. Um, USTA foundation is another important entity that I helped, uh, kickstart 22 years ago when I was on the board of the USTA. And their main role is to support NJTL chapters, which are all over the country that really help, um, have tennis programming for mostly after-school tennis programming for kids that need help to get to the tennis court and, and need coaching and, you know, need support. Um, so I just think the more we can do to kids to play games like tennis uh, and have it in their repertoire for their entire life. It makes for healthier kids, more balanced kids, Get kids getting away from their devices and social media. So let's all pick up a racket, um, whether it's cracked or not.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, of course, Merry Christmas to George, Kate, Sam, the entire family. And I appreciate you taking the time. Be safe, be healthy. Happy holidays. And know that a spot is always open for you here at Cracked Rackets.
1: A- Alex, thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course. Take care. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with the legend, Pam Shriver. A massive thank you to Pam for taking the time to speak with us. You just are able to learn so much whenever you tap into the wisdom of Pam Shriver. We appreciate her sharing that wisdom with us today. Of course, this is just one of many fantastic off-season conversations we have had already here at Cracked Rackets. If you're looking for all your lists, all your rankings, recapping the 2022 season, head on over to the mini break podcast feed if you're getting ready for the 2023 college tennis season the great shot podcast feed is going to be the place for you and again we know action has died down on the court we'll keep you busy with our content off of it a shout out as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the (laughs) of an editing job he does day in day out making all of our content possible with all of that said for the fantastic pam shriver our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Swing Vision, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.